What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's coming up this hour. Inflation numbers continuing to come in red hot. Today it was import prices, of all things. The Fed minutes are an hour away. And we're going to talk to the man who called for seven rate hikes this year, back in January, by the way. Is he sticking to that forecast? We'll explore that. Plus, stocks are falling once again today after a one-day reprieve of Russia concerns. But now NATO says Russia isn't moving troops away. They're actually putting more near the border. And some huge reports to get you ready for in earnings exchange. NVIDIA, Walmart, DoorDash, just to name a few, but that's where we'll focus. First, though, let's start with these markets. Dom Chu with the number. All right, down across the board, but that real-time handicapping of not just the rates picture, but the Russia-Ukraine situation is the reason why you aren't seeing massively wild swings. Still, though, we are down about three-quarters of 1% for the Dow. 34,711 is the last trade there, 275 points to the downside. The S&P, 44,38, down about three-quarters of 1% as well. And then the NASDAQ Composite, leading the declines, down about one and a quarter percent 178 points, 13,000. 960 the last trade there to give you an indication on that Nasdaq range at the highs of the session. We were down roughly about a half a percent and at the lows down about one and a half percent. So you can kind of see we're tilting towards the lower end of that trading range so far today. That picture for technology in the Nasdaq in particular has led to some underperformance yet again for the so-called growth part of the market. These two ETFs track growth versus value, the white line, the value trade and the orange line, the growth trade ticker IWD and IWF respectively. You can see just by the numbers, value is outperforming over the last year, but it's been like a jockeying for position. It was the white line value that outperformed in the beginning. Then they kind of got close and growth was outperforming. But you can see here now the at least outperformance has happened for the value trade again, but it's been a lot less volatile for that white line than it has been for the orange one. And then one stock that has gotten a lot of attention. It's a $12 billion financial technology company, but it's not really payments oriented. We're talking toast down about 18% right now, the maker of end-to-end solutions for bars and restaurants that lets customers and people place their orders, take their orders, put them into the kitchen, and then give them their checks. That company came out with a mixed report, wider than expected loss, better revenues, and they're growing their customer base. But it were certain aspects of the outlook that disappointed some investors. Still, a pandemic play-ish in Toast. Are people going out more to bars and restaurants? We'll see if that kind of picks things up. Remember, costs are going to be are, are going to be a big issue not just for restaurants but for even for toast as it ships out all of its point of sales and register type hardware guys have, Back Dom, over have you used it i love toast i so i i got my first experience my wife and i went out on a date night i was actually enamored with it yeah. I, I didn't have to do anything they they basically took the order I got the check. I didn't have to do anything but scan the QR code, and then I could do the tip and sign and everything just on my smartphone. It was actually a very streamlined solution. I it, thought it was pretty fun. Exa- it sounds like that was your Valentine. It, uh, was, <laughs> it was an early Valentine's <laughs> yeah. Day gift. No, I, it is a very easy solution. Very surprising stock reaction, especially with people returning to restaurants. Right. Dom, we'll see you in a bit. Thank you, you so much. Geopolitical tensions are rattling markets again as NATO pushes back on Russia's claims it's sending troops back to their home bases. 
NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg just said he's not seeing any signs of a pullback. We have uh, heard the signs from Moscow about uh, readiness to continue diplomatic uh, efforts. But so far, uh, we have not uh, seen any de-escalation on the ground. On the contrary, uh, it appears that Russia continues the military build-up. Joining me now with more on the Russia-Ukraine crisis is James Stavridis. He's the former Supreme Allied Commander at NATO and NBC, MSNBC Chief International Security and Diplomacy Analyst. It's great to have you back, uh, Admiral, and welcome. What do you make of these, these sort of statements at odds with each other about what's really going on here? Uh, as usual, Vladimir Putin is kind of pulling the strings and uh, staying ahead tactically by sowing more confusion here in the West. I'll add to what the Secretary General said, uh, Kelly, which is that um, there was a pretty significant cyber attack yesterday, DDoS attack against wide variety of Ukrainian command and control and their uh, overall systems of control. So um, clearly what we're seeing is Putin saying one thing, doing another. And, and I'll conclude on this point by simply saying the first thing that is going to be the leading edge of an attack is going to be cyber. So think of what happened yesterday as a bit of a warm up there. I continue to think it's a three in four chance that Putin will end up going forward with an invasion. Wow. And I was going to ask maybe if cyber would be the attack, if there's some kind of, you know, bait and switch uh, idea here. But I, it would be hard to explain what the purpose would otherwise be of mobilizing that many troops for this long a period of time. Yeah, I think the way to think about it, Kelly, is there's uh, a couple of possibilities. One is a full-on blitzkrieg attack where he goes to Kiev and uh, takes out the Zelensky government. I think that's unlikely. That buys him uh, a very difficult set of options going forward to include facing a Ukrainian insurgency, which I think would be very difficult. Um, on the other hand, to your point, um, it is very possible he will launch a cyber attack he will put in uh, unmarked troops. He'll kind of use the playbook he used in 2014 to carve another chunk out of uh, southeastern Ukraine and then park and attempt to negotiate going forward. Um, that seems to me a more a probable scenario than the full-on blitzkrieg at this point. Um, and let's face it, there's still an opportunity that we can stand down from this, that there can be further dialogue, but it's going to require Putin to make that decision. And this morning, Jen Stoltenberg also said that he believes Russian coercion is the quote-unquote new normal. What does that mean? Um, you know, we see Russia doing this kind of around its circuit. So uh, 2008, they invade a very small neighbor, Georgia. They still hold a couple provinces of that. Um, they invade Ukraine in 2014. They annex Crimea. Effectively, they control provinces in southeast Ukraine. They own effectively a chunk of territory of another small European country, Moldova. These are sometimes called frozen conflicts, but it really is a Putin exerting control in the region around Russia. And what should NATO do about that? Should they themselves look to the NATO borders and say, you know, this is our line of influence and we're not looking to extend that uh, beyond or it, in what way should they then, de, you know, demarcate uh, where they believe NATO presence and the threat, quote unquote, of their their activities is appropriate? 
Um, I'll tell you three things NATO should be doing, and I think they are doing. Uh, one is to shore up NATO country defenses, the 30 nations in NATO. This is why President Biden correctly deployed several thousand troops from the 18th Airborne Corps uh, to Europe to bolster NATO troops there alongside our European allies. So shore up NATO borders. Number two, for nations like Ukraine, not a NATO member, but a close partner, a democracy, somebody who has worked closely with us, we had to provide them the lethal aid, the intelligence, the cyber overwatch, the capability to resist, to make themselves, if you will, into a porcupine. You know, bears don't eat porcupines because they're kind of difficult to digest. And number three, NATO should be, at the same time as those two things, talking to Russia, trying to come up with a, a, a compromise of some kind, where we look at conventional forces in Europe, we look at intermediate uh, cruise missiles, we look at open skies treaty. There are plenty of diplomatic avenues still open. So some hard power inside NATO, work with the Ukrainians and some soft power approaches to Russia. We can do all three of those. Yeah, Michael McFall yesterday uh, was talking about a similar type of idea on those treaties. Uh, Admiral, it's been great to have you. Thanks for your thoughts today. Thanks a lot. See you next time. James Stavridis is the former Supreme Allied Commander at NATO. All right, 20-year bonds are up for auction. Top of the hour. Rick Santelli has the results. And how did it go over, Rick? Well, this was the 22nd auction of 20-year bonds. It was 19 billion of them, and the yield, Kelly, was 2.396, and the grade was a B minus, boy minus, and, and it, everything about it was just slightly above average. Uh, that yield, 2.396, exactly where the one issued market was, so it didn't gain or lose on the grading scale for pricing, which is always a big component. Uh, we did see the bid to cover, uh, indirect bids and dealers uh, take down all better than 10 auction average, but there was one thing that made it a B for the B minus, and that was direct bidders. Unlike indirect bidders, which has that foreign interest that you and I are always so interested in, direct bidders are like you know mutual funds, the primary dealers that go right in, and that was at 21%, the highest ever out of any of the 22 20-year auctions. Of course, this is the last and only auction of a coupon this week, and I will say this, it's all green with respect to buying because every yield on the curve right now is lower and price higher than we closed yesterday. Back to you. All right, Rick. Thank you very much, Rick Santelli. Now a news flash on the housing market where mortgage rates have been on the move. Diana Olick is here with the latest numbers. Diana? Well, Kelly, after a sharp jump last week, mortgage rates are climbing even higher this week. The average rate on the 30-year fix is up about five basis points just from last Friday and up around 125 basis points from a year ago. That all according to Mortgage News Daily. Now that is hitting demand. Applications to refinance a home loan are down well over 50% from a year ago. Refi demand fell 9% just last week. And for home buyers, it is just getting harder to afford anything in this already pricey housing market. Mortgage purchase volume applications was down 7% from a year ago. For those in the market, that means they have to get a bigger and bigger loans. The average size of a home buyer mortgage application set a new record last week at $453,000. So not only are home prices up close to 20% from a year ago, but the bulk of the sales are on the higher end of the market because that's where there's just more supply. Higher mortgage rates are also some of the factors plaguing home builders. A new report out today said builder sentiment fell this month as affordability for buyers weakens. Kelly? Diana, this is what makes my head hurt about the housing market right now is that affordability is worsening, 
you know, the buyers I talked to are on the sidelines and yet activity and still still looks pretty strong. So maybe we have to wait until the winter ends to get a better feel for where what momentum really looks like. Well, when you say activity is strong, I think demand is very strong. Activity has gotten lower, though, because there's simply so little on the market for sale. So you're not seeing as strong sales. And the home builders are actually slowing sales because they're concerned they can't build the homes fast enough to get them to the buyers when they say they will. So, again, I think when we get to that spring market, as you say, we have to see if more supply comes on. Then we're going to see what happens to prices. Yeah, it'll be very interesting, especially with rates doing what they are. Diana, thank you, as always. We appreciate it. Diana Olick. Still ahead, he called for seven rate hikes nearly two weeks ago, and then the rest of the streets started catching up after that very hot CPI report. We'll speak with Bank of America's chief U.S. economist next. Plus, NVIDIA is the best performer in the SMH index over the past year. It's 25% off its highs, though. Walmart's having its worst quarter in four years, and DoorDash is tracking for its fifth straight month of losses. All of these names are on deck with earnings. We have the details coming up in earnings exchange. In the Dow, P&G and Dow itself are leading today. Salesforce and Home Depot are your biggest laggards. About seven names are in the green. Index is down 276. We'll be right back. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. If you've been watching the economic data come in lately, you might be feeling a little whiplash. Friday, we saw a big plunge in consumer sentiment. Today, a huge jump in retail sales. January sales surged 13% year over year. Industrial production also coming in pretty strong. None of that points towards a looming slowdown. Maybe my next guest can help separate the signal from the noise here. He was the first to call for seven rate hikes this year. And joining me now is Ethan Harris. He's the head of global economics at B of A Securities. Ethan, welcome back. It's great to have you. Thank you. Can I just start with when you see people worried about recession because consumer sentiment is tanking and the yield curve is, you know, all the things that normally point in that direction. Do you think the odds of a slowdown are higher or is this or are they not? Tell me what you think is going on in the landscape here. So I think the sentiment indicators are suggesting that people are just in bad mood. I mean, people are tired of COVID and being locked up and wearing masks. Uh, People are are concerned about very high inflation, uh, and they're just in a bad mood, and they're expressing it in the surveys. I don't think this means they're going to stop shopping, as we could see with the retail sales report today. Uh, You could even argue that shopping becomes kind of retail therapy if uh, if you're kind of depressed about COVID. So 
it's uh, I don't take a much of a signal from the the confidence numbers. I think the economy's got solid momentum. What about the yield curve, which isn't a traditional economic indicator, but is obviously one that you know people follow? Yeah, I mean the yield curve is going to be flattening over time as the Fed hikes rates, and so. Um, I don't think we should be alarmed by that. I think that's a normal part of the uh, process of uh, getting back to normal in terms of monetary policy. At some point, the curve may invert, uh, which historically did signal recessions. But we need to be cautious about that because these days, uh, the long end of the U.S. market, the 10-year yield, is very distorted to the downside by foreign demand. And so it's not hard to invert the curve. You just have a regular rate hikes from the Fed, the long end being held down by foreign investors. And so it's not a reliable signal anymore. It's, it's a signal that foreigners love to buy U.S. bonds because their interest rates are so low. Mm. So I don't worry too much about the flattening of the curve. Eventually it may be a problem, but not now. Okay, so now that we've ruled out two of the most worrisome kind of recessionary data points, let's turn to the strength that's starting to come in and what it tells you about the persistence of inflation this year. So we have retail sales up 13% year on year. We have capacity utilization much stronger than expected. Import prices up 10% on the year. Um, How is this all going to pan out for the Fed? Well, I think the pressure on the Fed is building by the minute. Um, the, the data we've had um, since the Fed met uh, in January has been remarkably strong. It's not just strong numbers. They're beating consensus by a big margin. Uh, you have a lot of momentum in the job market. Uh, the consumer that kind of did a front-loaded Christmas shopping season and then faded in December will come roaring back in, in January uh, and then you look across the board, all the inflation data, you know, we're in 1980s type numbers, and you can't dismiss it as all transitory because it's so broad. It's, it's affecting almost every sector of the economy. So the pressure on the Fed is mounting here. Let's talk about what Neil Kashkari said earlier today, when, which I think does uh, speak for a big contingent of investors and economists. He said that more or less he thinks the inflation picture is going to resolve itself, that we will be well on our way back towards 2% inflation by the end of the year, and therefore he thinks the risk is that the Fed tightens too much. What about those who think this inflation will resolve itself? I completely disagree. I don't understand how you could argue that. Uh, by the time we get to the end of this year, we're probably going to have an unemployment rate close to 3%. That will be the lowest since 1953. Uh, the, when you look at the inflation indicators and you look at measures that look at the breadth of inflation as opposed to the kind of splashy headlines, you're running at 3 or 4% right now for just everyday items. Um, and you've now gone through a period that's going to last probably in total more than a year of extremely high inflation. That's going to have an impact on psychology and the way people think about wages and prices going forward. There's going to be an expectations effect from having such high inflation. This isn't just a little bout of inflation. This is a dramatic bout of inflation. So I, I completely disagree. Inflation's not going to come back to 2% on its own. The Fed has work to do. They're going to go slow. So I think the odds of them making a policy mistake and hiking too much are very low. In fact, your interview with the, the Fed president shows my point, that they're going to go super slow because they're worried about overdoing it. 
Um, I think they should be speeding up, personally. Yeah, and so, again, to those who say, well, isn't that going to damage the economy? And it, it, it is worth pointing out this is a midterm election year. They're, they're going to be under political pressure if they tighten and things slow. If they don't and the inflation problem gets worse, let's say they did nothing, Ethan. Where do you think inflation would be a year, a year and a half from now? Well, there's a, there's a lot of what's going to happen will be the re, uh, the reopening of supply chains and the easing of the pressure. So I think that inflation will come down in the next two years to something about 3% or maybe a little bit less. The Fed can, on the margin, help nudge it closer to two. They can't. It's too late for them, I think, to to prevent a significant sustained overshoot of the target. There's just too much pressure in the system. Uh, they're too late, and uh, you know it's it's becoming embedded. So what they need to do, however, is try to manage this, cool down the demand a little bit. You were talking about the housing market earlier. Mm-hmm. The housing market, even with higher mortgage rates, there's a huge shortage of homes for sale. So you can raise mortgage rates and have fewer buyers out there, but there are twice as many buyers as homes. So having fewer buyers won't stop the housing market, um, won't stop the uh, the transactions from taking place. So it's going to this economy is going to be quite resilient. Um, there's the Fed is behind the curve and uh, they they can't completely fix the inflation problem. I, I we're out of time, Ethan, but I wanted to play uh, what uh, Brian Moynihan said about the balance sheet earlier on. But it just as a final question here, because you do think seven rate hikes. What about the idea of leaning on massive balance sheet reduction instead? Well, I think that's got to be part of the toolkit. Um, you know, that'll be an add-on to the rate hikes. The, the, the Fed kind of trimming its balance sheet steadily over a several-year period, taking some of that liquidity out of the system and getting us not back to a tight period for the Fed, but just a normal. I mean, having a massive balance sheet and a zero interest rate in this environment it's not normal. It's at the extreme end of being dovish. They need to move into a more normal stance, and that includes both their policy tools. All right. We will leave it there. Ethan, thanks for all your time today. Hope to check back in soon. Thank you. Ethan Harris, head of global economics at Bank of America. Still ahead, this is not a stock for the faint of heart. That's how one analyst is describing Macy's after its meteoric rise and recent stumble. Up next, we'll ask him why he says the stock could either explode 600% from here or crumble back to 15 bucks a share. Plus, crypto investors are finding a way to protect against volatility. We look at one method gaining momentum with Bitcoin back below 44,000 today. Stay with us. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. We are red across the board, about 70 points off the session low for the Dow. The Nasdaq, the underperformer, down 1.1%. Let's get to Frank Holland for a CNBC News update. Hi, Frank. Hey there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Interior Secretary under President Trump, Ryan Zinke, misused his position to help a real estate project in his Montana hometown. That's according to an Interior Department investigation. The report also found Zinke lied about the project to an ethics official with that agency. Up in Canada, police are telling protesting truckers in the nation's capital that they need to leave right now. Officers are ticketing trucks and warning drivers they risk arrest and the loss of their licenses under Canada's Emergencies Act. A few drivers actually ripped up those written warnings. Some Ottawa streets remain clogged after three weeks of protests. In Kyiv, people are defying pressure from Moscow. Hundreds carried a 660-foot-long Ukrainian flag to celebrate, quote, a day of national unity declared by President Zelensky. More huge flags were unfurled in other parts of the country in shows of support. And on the news tonight, why Bob Saget's family wants to block the release of details from a probe into his death and why some are questioning what actually killed him. That's tonight at 7 Eastern, and that's the very latest. Kelly, All right. back Frank, over to you. Thank you very much, our Frank Holland. Still ahead, NVIDIA, Walmart, and DoorDash all getting set to report their results. We have the action, the story, and the trade for each name in earnings exchange next. Welcome back. It's time for Earnings Exchange. We have some big reports coming up, and we'll give you the action, the story, and the trade on three of them. Starting with NVIDIA. Got to start with NVIDIA. The tech story of the last, almost the market story of the past decade. It's just been incredible, but the stock is under pressure here as they get set to report results. We're down 12% on the year, 20% off the highs, and there's a lot to watch. Julia Borson is here with the story on NVIDIA for us. Gina Sanchez is here with our trades today. She is the founder and CEO of Chantico Global and a CNBC contributor. Sorry if I called you founder. CEO. Anyway, uh, welcome to you both. Julia, let's start with you. What are we watching on NVIDIA? Well, here's the thing, Kelly. NVIDIA is off its highs, but the stock is still up 60%, 68% over the past 12 months. And analysts are very much bullish going into earnings. 79% of analysts have a buy rating on this stock, and they do expect growth to be driven by the chipmakers gaming business as well as the data center business. They're looking for a 48% increase in revenue and a 57% increase in earnings. And a number of analysts are looking for not just a beat, but also a raise in terms of guidance. Investors are looking for insight into the data center and gaming trends. And there is this expectation that the data center center business could accelerate. The big question for this company is what's next after the company's purchase of ARM from SoftBank has been called off. Piper issuing a note saying that they believe the termination of the ARM deal will bring management's focus to emerging areas such as the Omniverse. That's what NVIDIA's CEO calls his version of the metaverse. And the company has been doing a lot of very interesting deals. They just did one with Jaguar Land Rover to bring its AI-powered driving systems into the future of autonomous vehicles. So I think we could hear a lot about these other deals and all of the different places, whether it's in terms of automakers or in terms of the auto, um, the Omniverse, that its chips can be used. Kelly? All right, Omniverse, Metaverse. 
<laughs> a little bit of everything uh, they can do. Gina, and founder is appropriate here, so I'm glad that wasn't a slip up. Um, tell me about the stock. And to my, if I recall correctly, this is a favorite of yours. This is a favorite, and Lido Advisors does own it in their client strategies. And the thing is, is that while it's getting uh, beaten up because many high multiple stocks are getting beaten up, we think this is a baby that's getting thrown out with the bathwater because there's a tremendous tremendously positive outlook, not just with what Julia said, which is the outlook for data centers, um, but also, you know, the, the potential that they have to start to incorporate and embed their own software into the chips, which is actually a very high margin play, and it will expand their margins from an already, you know, nice 27% operating margin. Um, it could go upwards of, of, of 30%, uh, mid-30s and even into the 40s, and that's huge. Um, and, and in the middle of that, you also have, you know, the notion that I think the market is really concerned about supply chain because, you know, they are a contract manufacturer. They contract out to companies like Taiwan Semiconductor to build. And so that supply chain kind of pressure is still one that they are going to have to address during uh, the earnings call. Um, and that looks to be sort of sorting itself out. And by the end of the year, we're expecting that some of the pressures from that, from, from that set of worries should start to dissipate. Is there anything that would make you more cautious on the stock in the near term that you might hear tonight? You know, I think the, the, you know, the big question really comes with, you know, how they're going to deliver their chips to the, the final end user. And that question about the supply chain is really what we're looking to, what, yeah. what we're paying attention to, because this isn't something that is limited by demand. It's limited by supply right now. Exactly. Exactly. So it reminds me a little bit of the housing market, in fact. Uh, all right. We look forward to NVIDIA later on. Gina, stay with us. Julia, we appreciate it. And we will turn our attention to Walmart after that strong retail sales this morning. Now we get to hear from Walmart itself some more insight into the consumer. They report before the bell tomorrow. Courtney Reagan here with the story. And Court, it's been a tough go for the stock lately. It's down about 8% over the past year. Which is so interesting, Kelly, because really Walmart has been what should be considered a pandemic winner. Certainly earlier on when everyone was going through that hoarding and that stock up phase, Walmart was a winner, whether it was online or in store. And the same store sales for the United States, its biggest region, have been really impressive. They are expected to grow around 6% or so when those results are out tomorrow. That is very impressive for a retailer that's putting up about $151 billion in revenue for just a quarter. And so I think it's very interesting to see the stock price sort of non-reaction to even very strong numbers. So we'll see what we get tomorrow, but of course we want to hear everything the retailer and executives have to say about the health of the consumer, how the consumer is feeling, if they're, if they're attracting a new consumer as inflationary pressures rise. If anyone can deal with the cost of inflation from a business standpoint, it's Walmart because yeah. of their economies of scale. They can keep prices at least as low as possible in these scenarios, even if they too eventually have to raise some prices on towards the consumer. And Gina, why do you think it is that the stock, like Courtney said, it they're putting out these huge numbers and the stock is kind of un, unimpressed, unmoved? Well, you know, I think part of that is just technical. Walmart went through a big buyback program and the, and the Wal Walton family began selling some of their shares. I think that was part of what depressed the stock price. So I think there's a lot that's still unpacked in the stock price and it's, it's ready to go. I completely agree with Courtney that they are hitting, they're just like, you know, 
hitting the ball out of the park here because, you know, the numbers are strong, but also there are a number of other factors. You look at e-commerce. They really dove into e-commerce during the pandemic, which was just the right time to do that. And they're showing enormous growth there. Um, and quite frankly, the pressure in inflation is actually driving consumers into the, um, you know, into the stores um, because they are low price uh, offerings. And so, you know, if you look at what is happening, in fact, their revenue growth is way outstripping any pressure they're feeling on the inflation front. Um, uh, just within their own kind of wage growth, et cetera. You know, so, so the, the, the company itself is probably going to also address the question of labor tightness sure. um, as well as, you know, other things that might impact costs. But they are getting it back in spades in terms of revenue. All right. So you're sticking with Walmart, sticking with NVIDIA here. The next one, I think, is going to be a different story. Courtney, we will let you go for what could be an epic brawl over DoorDash. Uh, the stock has struggled this year, down more than 35%, but ahead of its fifth report as a public company today, they've never missed revenue estimates. They've never traded lower after results. Deirdre Bosa is here with the story for us. Deirdre? <laughs> They're even more profitable than some of its peers, Kelly, and that really is reflected in the valuation. It does enjoy a premium over the likes of Uber and Lyft and Grubhub. Uh, this is, of course, a classic pandemic play, however, right? It's a huge revenue growth. The company has flagged that it's expected to come down post-pandemic, but the company is trying to make a transition of sorts. Yes, we know DoorDash for food delivery, but there's now 40,000 vendors that are non-restaurant vendors on the platform. So it's kind of engaging in this next sort of battle in the delivery space, which is last mile or quick commerce. And it's kind of changing its business model to do so as well. We've talked about this in the past, but Dash Marts, this is where it sort of owns the whole process that analysts like because it goes from a 3P platform to a 1P and you have more control over the customer experience. And you can do things like experiment with inventory levels and prices and delivery speeds. Uh, so this quarter is going to be really important to show how DoorDash is positioned coming out of the pandemic. What's next? As you said, the stock has been under pressure, yeah. down about 55% over the last year, but still valued higher than its peers. Gina, what's not to love? So <laughs> DoorDash has a minus 15% operating margin. That is a negative number in front of that. And that tells you that they are continuing to lose money every time they make a delivery. And the, the whole business model that they're up against, and quite frankly, the competitors that are up, that, that they're up against, they're basically trying to see who can utilize investor capital um, enough to outlive everyone else so that when all the competitors are dead, they can finally start to raise their prices and make money. I don't buy that. And quite frankly, the model that DoorDash has is just not a scalable model. It still requires a human being to go and deliver the thing. And ultimately, they have yet to get customers to adequately pay for that service price. But uh, Gina, people will say, you know, never bet against a lazy consumer. Can't DoorDash ultimately win that bet? The consumer may be lazy, but they're also cheap. There's a price and there's that. That's really what determines what the price is. All right, Deirdre, quick last word. Just, I just want to thank Gina. Uh, well said. This is kind of like ride sharing all over again. Is it a race to the bottom, especially as they're going into places like quick commerce where they're competing with investor dollars. But Gina, you're right. They're also now competing once again with Silicon Valley dollars. We know pockets are flush. You have lots of companies in the private space that are just throwing money here. But if you believe in Tony Shu, which many people do, 
Maybe you do think that he's going to win it all, Kelly. All right. He has a lot uh, on his shoulders. We'll leave it there. Dear Jabosa, Gina Sanchez, thank you both very much for this edition of Earnings Exchange. Still ahead, Bitcoin hovering around 43000 today, but it's been a pretty volatile start to the year. That volatility has investors looking for ways to take risk off the table without taking their Bitcoin off the table. We'll tell you how next. Welcome back, everybody. Here's a quick check on crypto. As we see risk under pressure, the Bitcoin space is as well today. Also, Ether, Solana, not huge declines, but declines nevertheless. A lot of investors have been turning to the options market amid this volatility in crypto in order to take some risk off the table. Kate Rooney is here with more on these strategies. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, despite Bitcoin's move higher in recent weeks, investors have been taking some risk off the table, but they're not necessarily selling Bitcoin. More investors are buying downside protection in futures markets, analysts at Glassnode took a look at this. Investors have been moving away from more speculative call options into more protective put options. Glassnode calls it a new regime and a shift in investor sentiment lately. The key driver, same thing affecting stocks, rate hikes expected in March and fears of conflict in Ukraine adding to some of that uncertainty. In the past week or so, there's also been a drop in overall leverage. The primary driver appears to be traders closing out their futures positions rather than forced selling. Hence why you're not seeing a bunch of volatility in Bitcoin. The spot markets have been pretty stable and investors look to be riding out whatever macro uncertainty lies ahead. Analysts say that they haven't seen a mass exit driven by fear or panic as we've seen in previous cycles. And all this speaks to a maturing crypto market with more risk management instruments. But the rise of futures and derivatives adds to the potential for volatility. Last year, a lot of traders got caught on the wrong side of some risky positions. That was one of the big drivers of 20 and 30 percent swings we saw at least last summer. And traders did need to liquidate at that point. We did see some forced liquidations last year. Offshore exchanges have also put a cap on some of the risk. You've got FTX and Binance that used to allow 100 to 1 leverage. That has come down significantly. Kelly. And now that the dust has settled a little from the crypto bull, Kate, any takeaways from that, from all of the attention? And, you know, I don't know about any flows, but certainly there was a lot of interest uh, Sunday evening in some of these giveaways. Yeah, it was interesting. Fascinating to see as much advertising as we did. I, uh, I got some data from Sensor Tower on Monday. Uh, they looked at Coinbase in particular. It was something like 186 in the App Store on February 12th, the day before the game. February 13th, in about a matter of an hour, it jumped to number two on the App Store. And then downloads were up you know, 130% or so. So it did see a bump in downloads and app downloads overall. Some of the other crypto apps also got a bump. One of the things that actually Tom Lee uh, mentioned the other day in an interview, I was talking to him about the, the Super Bowl ads and if that would help potentially bring more traders into the market. That's been something that they're looking for in terms of uh, not, there just hasn't been as much retail interest lately. He said it actually could work the opposite way, that if traders get in and they're sort of drawn in by this advertising or any sort of perks, if there's a ton of volatility and say they lose money, they could actually be spooked True. and kind of leave the market permanently. So you really want the growth to be organic. And uh, some of that advertising can just be a temporary boost. You want to make sure, at least on the side of the exchanges, that it's an investor that comes in and is there for the long term versus just looking for that 
you know, $15 park or, you know, their friend saying, hey, download this app. Right. So we'll see if it sticks around. It's and- a great point. You know, unlike sports betting, which can draw you in and then make money off of you for a very long period of time, this not exactly uh, necessarily the same. Kate, we appreciate it. Kate Rooney reporting. Still ahead, shares of Macy's are up 35% over the past six months. And my next guest says they could rally another 600% from here. They have a lot to go, but he makes his case next. As we head to break, let's get some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. Shares of Roblox are on pace for their worst day ever after reporting a wider than expected loss and missing revenue estimates. They're down 26%. January bookings or the value of virtual currency purchases showed a deceleration compared to late last year. Kind of goes to what Kate was saying. Here's what CEO David Bazuki told Jim Cramer on Squawk on the Street when asked why they can't make more money. We have so many opportunities to increase monetization on our platform. We're not really touching advertising. We're not touching 3D immersive shopping on our platform. We're being very gentle on monetization relative to quality user growth. Welcome back. Today's data showing department store sales jumped about 9% in January, month on month. That suggests maybe consumers haven't completely given up on some of the more traditional retailers. My next guest is betting these trends will last, and he's making a very bold call on Macy's, saying it could rally at least 90% from here, but it's not for the faint of heart. With us now is Omar Saad. He's fundamental research analyst with Evercore ISI. Omar, welcome. A lot of love here. What do you think are the, uh, the, the big story is? Thanks for having me. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of nailed it on the head. I think, number one, stores aren't dead. Uh, If anything, in the soft lines universe and fashion world, if you will, Omnichannel is continuing to prove to be the winning business model long-term, one that combines, obviously, digital and stores. And companies like Macy's, uh, I think, are finding an increased relevance in the marketplace. And, you know, there's been some ancillary benefits as we've gone through COVID uh, with tight inventories and strong demand recovery. We've also seen strong margins out of department stores such as Macy's. And uh, yet they're still trading at extremely low valuations, uh, six times the current year earnings, if you will, or actually the year that just ended earnings uh, implies that the market expects earnings to fall uh, in the future and not go up. And we actually think there's been a lot of changes in the department store sector and, and earnings have as much of a chance to rise and perhaps even significantly, and, and which means the multiple could expand as well. Well, the multiple is sitting around six right now and the stock's around 25. You Do you truly think this could be a, a six or seven X time performer? I mean, how do you get to that scenario? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's a little bit of an illustrative uh, exercise, but it has that kind of potential uh, and these really big, chunky opportunities. Uh, and we kind of broke them into four buckets, real estate monetization. As you may know, Macy's owns uh, or effectively owns a lot of its real estate. And there are, Macy's is also rolling out really uh, interesting uh, uh, other uh, digital-related services like advertising services and 3P uh, marketplace business models, leveraging its extremely high web traffic. You know, and a lot of the the same ways that Amazon and other internet companies do. Uh, not only are those inter- uh, profit opportunities, but I think the multiple for the stock will expand as they become a little bit more and more uh, like Amazon in a way. And then, of course, we think we're still in a recovery from COVID and there's still a lot of pent up demand out there for, for, for fashion and apparel uh, as the life returns to normal. And, and that core Macy's older customer, you know, still hasn't yet to fully return. So we think there's a number of near term and, uh, you know, structural opportunities here. But basically, in order to get the stock to go, you know, over 100 bucks a share, you'd basically have to see them sell everything they own, right? 
Well, yeah. I mean, on paper, we did an analysis that shows, you know, Macy's theoretically could monetize uh, its own real estate in some sort of sale leafback transaction with a REIT company and uh, raise as much as $7 billion in cash up front in exchange to pay a rent of 550 to $600 million of rent expense longer term. But, you know, to put that $7 billion cash raise in perspective, the, the, the entire market cap of the company is around $7.5 billion, $8 billion. So you could, one could buy back a significant percentage of the outstanding share base with that kind of capital raise. Now, now the, some sort of massive sale leaseback transaction like that hasn't ever been done, uh, as far as we know, in our space. But, um, you know, with private equity and other firms, uh, activists and suggestivists, looking at these really low valuations and the arbitrage between REIT valuations and department store valuations, Situations, uh, it's an opportunity that becomes more attractive, I think, to investors right. and management. And, and, and if it doesn't all go well, then we kind of know, uh, know what we're talking about with the stock. But we appreciate the ideas, Omar, about what could happen here if they get creative or even if they just let the reopening play out. Uh, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Omar Saad joining us from Evercore ISI. Still ahead, the national price for a gallon of gasoline is now sitting at $3.51. Washington is taking notice, but who is leading the charge and what they want to do now may surprise you. That's next. Welcome back. Rising prices at the pump are leading to a curious dynamic in Washington, with Democrats proposing a tax cut and Republicans putting up a roadblock. Kayla Tausche has the latest. Kayla? Kelly, geopolitical uncertainty continues driving energy prices up for American consumers, and the White House and Democratic lawmakers are trying to show voters they're looking for ways to alleviate those pricing pressures. One option on the table is a temporary suspension of the federal gas tax. It's about 18 cents on a gallon of regular, 24 cents on diesel, and in 2019, it raised about $45 billion for highway repairs. Some Senate Democrats have proposed pausing that until 2023, daring Republicans to quash that tax cut. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is not on board, though, echoing concerns raised by a former Treasury secretary saying, quote, Larry Summers had it right. He said it was a goofy gimmick. Now, the White House is declining to say how seriously any of these options are being weighed, only that no final decisions have been made. And a Democratic source tells me just moments ago a big aspect of this, Kelly, is just messaging. So if this isn't going anywhere, what other options might they explore at this point since we already did a release of barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? Well, the administration could still go back to that option. They could always release more from the emergency reserves, and they could try to discuss another coordinated reserve with allies around the world, similar to what happened in November. There are discussions underway uh, nearly every day on this front to try to coordinate, especially with a possible invasion uh, of Ukraine by Russia. The White House pointed that out again in a briefing just uh, a few moments ago. So certainly that is still on the table, Kelly. Uh, but the impact is short term, as we saw. The price of gas at the pump is still back where it was, higher than where it was before the White House did that back in November. But I think the main point to keep in mind with this proposal for the federal gas tax is primarily just to show voters that they're talking about things they can do, that they're aware that it hurts people's pocketbooks, that they are at least trying to put things on the table, even yeah. though behind the scenes, what I'm hearing from a lot of aides is, you know, that there aren't that many pros to it. It's really hard to put something like this back in place once you roll it back. Yeah. And if they were to re uh, let it go for a while, would they just borrow and still put $45 billion towards highway repairs or would that money not uh, be available? 
Well, they can always pass new legislation trying to find new revenues from somewhere else, but that's another one of those issues that the Highway Trust Fund needs that money. That is one point that the Chamber of Commerce has raised in opposing any potential rollback of the gas tax. So certainly there are a lot of critics of doing this, yeah. even though the White House is trying to show voters it cares. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche with the latest. All right, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.